We're uh, in our third week, we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, so um, hopefully the pages around Matthew chapter 5 through 7 in your Bible are getting a little worn as you're reading up before we uh, actually uh, come here on Sunday morning to open up the word there, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. You can turn there uh, a while, we're going to be in the 20s, the verses in the 20s today. Uh, Before we begin, um, are you familiar with this? Some of you? There's a big fan base out there for this Netflix series called Stranger Things. Um, I I must admit I am a big fan, and it's really disappointing that I have to wait till 2022 until season four comes out. But uh, it's a really interesting, uh, fun kind of a a show. It's a combination of of the movie Goonies and E.T., You put those two uh, movies together and you got this series called Stranger Things because it involves a group of middle school friends. And uh, they discover, not not by by their own design, but they discover that there is something called the upside down world. And it's a world just like ours, but it's a world full of decay. It's a world full of danger and evil creatures. the, in the series, in the show, the upside down invades our world. And that's how trouble begins. And the kids uh, find themselves in the middle of trying to save their, their families, trying to save their town, and, and yes, trying to save the world from the power of the upside down world. In a sense, it describes the world that we live in, doesn't it? If I were to ask the question, what is right and wrong, in your opinion, how would most people respond? Well, in a recent survey, 83% of people under 25 responded to that question with, whatever seems right and wrong to you, that's what's right and wrong. So it's going to be different for every person. Relativism is what it's called. It's not new but it certainly is rampant in our world today. Relativism in our world has led to the right being called wrong and what is wrong being called right. Our moral world is upside down in many areas and decaying because of it. The same is true in the uh, pluralistic society of Jesus' day. When you think of the Apostle Paul going to uh, Mars Hill and getting ready to preach, Um, There there were so many idols and statues of different gods that they even had one that was uh, dedicated to the unknown god. So just in case we missed one, here's his statue or her statue or its statue. Pluralistic society, very similar to ours. Even in the Jewish culture in which Jesus lived, even with the law, the Ten Commandments, what was right and wrong had been distorted by the religious leaders for centuries. In expanding the law of Moses, which was pretty specific, the rabbis through the centuries had added volumes upon volumes of their own interpretations of the law. And in many ways, their writings and their practical applications of the law were so far from the Ten Commandments that you could call it an upside-down world. And in following the letter of the law, or what they thought was the letter of the law, they violated the very spirit of the law that God intended. Like the little boy who refused to sit down after being told by his teacher, it's time to sit. And he just refused. 
He just stood there with his arms folded. I'm not going to sit down. And finally, he did sit down, and she said, thank you. And he said, I may be sitting on the uh, outside, but I'm standing on the inside. You know, many people are like that. And the Jewish law was like that in Jesus' day. So Jesus here, in his, his first sermon that we have recorded, and in a sense, it's the beginning of his ministry, the beginning of going public, Jesus is ready to hit his listeners with the spirit of the law, the spirit of the law, the way God intended it. In a sense, he's about ready to turn things right side up. And so Jesus introduces his sermon, as we talked about two weeks ago, with something we call the Beatitudes. And then he gives his disciples and his listeners this, his overarching point, even a picture of his own ministry and, and the purpose of his life and the purpose for our lives you need to be salt and you need to be light. Salt in a decaying, awful tasting culture, and we need to be light in a dark, spiritually lost world. So that's how he sets it up. And now he's getting ready to give the practical application of that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. And practically speaking, he's going to rock their world. He's about to rock their religious world. And some listeners, when they hear what he's about to say, when they hear what he says, they say things like, this is unlike anything we were ever taught in the synagogue, ever. In fact, when the sermon is over, the end of chapter 7, look at the response of the people at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority not as their teachers of the law. They were amazed at his authority in this sermon. And so before he goes further, after telling us these are the principles of the kingdom, and this is your purpose to be salt and light, before he gets to the practicals, <clears throat> he clarifies his position about what he thinks about the law and the prophets because he was about to rock their world. So in Matthew chapter 5, we look at verse 17. Before he begins talking about practicals, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. See, some people were going to hear what he had to say, and they're going to say, Whoa, this is so different. This is a new thing. He says, I'm not here to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them to fulfill the law, to fulfill the prophets. For, I, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, some of his listeners were going to get the wrong idea about Jesus. Oh, Jesus is really slamming the rabbis. This is something brand new. He's violating God's law. Some of the teachers of the law were going to say, this isn't right. He's going against the teaching of the Old Testament. Well, after all, I can see how some people would think that because he says six times, you've heard it said, but I tell you. He says it six times. You've heard it said, but I tell you. Jesus isn't violating the law. He's elevating the law of God. He's elevating it, and he's about to demonstrate that the teachers of the law had distorted God's law to their own advantage. 
So from the very beginning, he wants to clarify, I'm not coming to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I'm not, calling, uh, I'm not coming to abolish the prophets, to strike all them out. No, I'm coming to fulfill what the prophets said. You know, people today can think the same way. That Jesus found the Christian religion, which is wholly different from the Jewish faith. You've heard that before. Some today, like, like Marcion, a, a teacher in the first and second century, see that the Old Testament and the New Testament actually describe two different gods. You have Moses' angry God, and then you have Jesus' God of grace. Marcion was, was thrown out of the church. He's excommunicated as a heretic in the second century because of that idea. So Jesus, before he gets into the practicals, makes it clear that he's, no, 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 he's here to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, we don't have time to study this now, but everything in the law points to Christ. Everything. Everything in the temple, the large bowl of water points to Jesus as the in the holy place points to Jesus who claimed to be the bread of heaven. The altar points to the one and only and last sacrifice, Jesus on the cross. See, everything in the law, all those symbols are fulfilled in Jesus. He also lived a life in complete fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. No one has kept the Ten Commandments except Jesus from birth to resurrection. And we don't have time to look at the prophets but you can do that research where the prophets all point to the coming Messiah. So he fulfilled all of the prophets' words. And he wanted to make that clear from the very start. What he's about to say is not something wholly different. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And what he's about to preach is not in violation of God's law. He's elevating it. He's fulfilling it. He's addressing not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. You know who was really good at the letter of the law? The Pharisees and the religious teachers. And that's why he says at the very front end of his sermon, he says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa, that's no way to win friends you know, and influence people, especially as you're beginning your ministry. This is a full frontal attack on the religious elite. These are the, peop these are the people that the, that the people listen to in the synagogues. And he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of your teachers, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm thinking some of those attending the sermon were just sitting there looking over their shoulders and hoping their rabbis weren't there seeing them listen to Jesus. <clears throat> you see, to get into heaven, which is a perfect place with a perfect God and eternal perfection in, in, every, in every facet, you and I need to be righteous, totally righteous. If we aren't, we would ruin heaven. If we walked into heaven and we were not righteous, we would ruin it. And Jesus says the kind of righteousness that the religious elite were espousing and were teaching in the synagogues wasn't good enough. Why? Because no one can be righteous or can become righteous by trying to live in the letter of God's law. We can't do it. 
And so he begins, he's trying to press this point, and so he begins with one example after another, explaining God's intent in the law, God's spirit of the law, what's truly required by God to be righteous. And we're just going to look at the first three examples today. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, we read, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. See how he's elevating the law. And he's trying to show them the spirit of the law. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which is answerable, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Strong, strong words. He goes on, therefore, if, any, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. He's digging deep. Then he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. What is Jesus starting with? He's starting with talking about reconciliation in our, in our everyday lives. And to get practical, he, he's talking about three things. He's talking about what I'd like to say, going for the kill and going to church and going to court. So let's talk about that first example, going for the kill, Matthew chapter 5 here, verses 21 and 22. <clears throat> before, we, before we look at that, again, when someone is asked, um, are you a good person? Would you consider yourself good? Commonly, one of the responses is, well, I've never murdered anybody, if that's what you're asking. Right? You know, so, so to be a good person means you haven't murdered anybody, right? Jesus would say, oh, really? Because look what the verse says. You've heard that it was said to, to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus says, if I find my temperature rising and I'm continually angry at someone to the point that I start calling them a moron, which is what raka means, or an idiot, Jesus says, it's as if I'm murdering them. The way I speak in an angry way to a brother or sister is murder, according to Jesus. Calling someone a fool or an idiot or being angry at them is like mur murdering them. How, how can that be? I mean, how can that be? It's the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law, that defines righteousness. James explains it like this, because uh, James uh, kind of comments on this, on this uh, idea when he says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. See, when we continue in anger with, with a brother, when we call someone a name, we do so with the same spirit as if we would want to murder them because we are killing 
we are attacking the likeness of God in that person. Every person in this world, even the most difficult person you have to deal with, that person that cuts you off or gets your order wrong for some reason at Dunkin' Donuts, uh, every person has the image of God pressed into them. And when we attack them with our words, we're attacking that image. It's as if I'm taking a penny which has the impression of Abraham Lincoln on it and I'm scratching it out. It's being disrespectful to Abraham Lincoln. And when we use our words in an angry way towards one another, we are assaulting the image of God in that other person. Isn't that terribly convicting? It really is. See, if Jesus were to have a personal conversation with me, and if he saw a grudge in my heart towards someone, he would ask, why are you killing that person in your heart, Dave? You're breaking my law, do not murder, because you're assaulting the image of God in that person. Yeah, I'm a good person. I've never murdered anyone. Jesus says, we better think about that. In Galatians 5.14, uh, we're told the entire law... The law is fulfilled in, in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. I, I had just read this passage uh, over again this week before lunch. And when I went to lunch, I was overcharged. And I waited almost 15 minutes for it to be corrected. And then another 10 minutes for my food. I had to get back to work. And you know what was running through my mind? I mean, how difficult is this to push the button that says meal number one? Not, not twice like, like the person did, just once. And it wasn't a really complicated meal. I'm not a complicated person when it comes to lunch. How difficult is, it, is this really? Well, praise God uh, for his spirit in us because immediately he said, you know, uh, these people trying to figure this out in front of you, they have my image stamped on them just like my image is stamped on you. Hit the brakes, Dave. And then my, my, my thoughts were changed, like maybe this person is brand new. Maybe this person doesn't understand English as well as I do. Maybe this person, maybe this is the only job that they could get right now. And my heart was changed. Because the Spirit said, don't attack the image of God that I've placed in that person. Friends, that is supernatural. It is not natural at all for me. It is supernatural. And I know that sounds, that sounds a little um, trivial, but if we were to all respond to the people who are, who are in our lives that, that aggravate us, that are difficult to deal with in this way, would we be sought in light? We would. We'd be fulfilling our purpose as disciples of Jesus. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So don't go for the kill. <laughs> don't go for the kill. Next, Jesus starts talking about going to church or in his day going to synagogue when he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the offer altar, first go and reconcile uh, to them, and then come and offer your gift. So he's talking about, you know, going to worship is what he's talking about. 
actually, he's not talking about going. He's talking about leaving worship. If you read this correctly, he's talking about leaving worship and making something right and then coming back. In his day, it would be the synagogue or, 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 the, or the temple. Now, the religious leaders of his day had drilled into their people the importance of the act of bringing the correct offerings at the correct time in order to be what? Righteous. We have an act, correct offerings, correct time in order to be right before God. Completely ignoring the intent and the heart behind the gift. It was the act that was most important. Jesus says, if the heart isn't right, then the gift isn't right. If the heart isn't right, then the gift isn't right. So if I'm teaching or you're singing or we're reading or giving financially or taking meals to the sick or whatever gift we, we want to name, if our heart isn't right, the gift isn't right. In particular, if you have something against someone or if they have something against you and you know about it, you're cognizant of it, Jesus says, drop the gift. I know that'd be very embarrassing, but he says, drop the gift, just stop. Leave the gift at the temple's altar and go be reconciled. Because he's saying reconciliation is more important than giving gifts to God. It's more important than talent that's offered to God. Like a good sermon or a good meal or a good song or a good Bible study, reconciliation is more important than all of that stuff, Jesus says. I remember years ago being at youth conference, it's now called Momentum, but we were all sitting in the grass, there's probably about 2,000 of us getting ready for communion. We were all spread out into our groups and we're getting ready for communion. And the speaker uh, read this passage and said something like, you know, you guys have had a whole week together, getting to know new people and taking adventures together, sharing the gospel together. But don't take communion with God if you have something in your heart against someone else. And he said, before we move on, we're going to pause and let anyone who needs to clear things up to do so now before we, we, we go on with, with communion. And I remember sitting there uh, being amazed as kids all over got up and they wandered around the lawn to try to find that person that they had hurt that week. Find that person that they had a grudge against that week. Because reconciliation is more important than taking communion, the act of communion. I also remember being in a church where I was told not to invite uh, certain people to the same gathering because they hadn't been on speaking terms in years in the church. Years worth of worthless singing, worthless giving, worthless worshiping because they weren't reconciled. That's what Jesus said. And so for some of us in this room, we probably shouldn't be singing the songs at the conclusion of this service. If we're really going to listen to Jesus, instead the best application for the Lord's words for you today is to go home, find a quiet spot, get out your phone and call whoever, call your sibling, call your last pastor or your boss or somebody you work with, somebody you know that there's something between the two of you. 
and just ask for forgiveness. Leave your gift. Go and be reconciled, Jesus says. That's true worship. And finally, he talks about uh, this, this interesting thing about going to court. Um, just like today, Jesus lived in a very overly litigious society. Uh, people were demanding. People were suing. And he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Before you get the legal department involved, if at all possible, work it out with each other. Reconcile with each other. Don't let things simmer so that they get worse and worse and worse until you get to the point where you've got to go to court. Deal with it quickly. Don't dig in your heels. Settle matters quickly, even while you're on the way. Jesus wants us to avoid court if at all possible and reconcile under the judge of heaven because we might have to reconcile on a judge here on earth who's not going to carry much mercy. And we do live in a very demanding world. And sometimes we have this extreme entitlement that's embedded into so many policies in our workplace or in education and government. And that demanding attitude can drive wedges between people. And Jesus here is emphasizing the urgency of making things right. Make things right. Sometimes, um, as as God's children, we, we assume falsely that our lives are segmented into this secular and into this religious uh, uh, areas. And we talk about reconciliation in our religious life, you know, reconciliation with God and reconciliation you know, with brothers and sisters in Christ, but we really, it doesn't cross over. Where, what is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about reconciliation in the secular parts of our lives. keep us from thinking that settling our differences is only a church rule, he says, no, it's a life rule. He's reminding us that reconciliation involves all of our lives, even in our workplace. It's not just the religious part. See, Jesus is serious about forgiveness, about mercy, and about reconciliation as a way of life, because that's God's way. That is God's way. So it's not a matter of getting what I deserve or getting everything I can get. Reconciliation is more important than that. Restoring a crumbling relationship is more important than even complete restitution. That's what Jesus is saying here. So here he is at the beginning of his sermon, dealing with practical things, and the whole point is reconciliation. With somebody who aggravates you, with somebody you worship with, or even with an adversary, he says, reconcile. I mean, that's the theme. To be salt and light, we must be reconcilers. This, is, this was Jesus' entire purpose for coming to our planet, wasn't it? Was to reconcile us to God and to show us reconciliation here with each other. So it's not surprising at all to see him driving it home at the beginning of his sermon. He came to reconcile us to God and to make us righteous so we can be reconciled to God and then to reconcile as salt and light in the world. Jesus is driving home this necessity. And the fact that it's required 
for us to be authentic in our relationship with God. He wants us to develop the righteousness that he's imparted to us, those who are in Christ, so that we can produce a righteousness that people can see. And people can see it and say, oh, that's what it means to be a child of God. That's so different than what I'm used to. Salt and light. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And here, in these first three examples, he shows us the depth and the beauty of the character of a person who is living out the Beatitudes, who is being salt and light. And, and look how beautiful this life is when we live not just the letter of the law, but we live the spirit of the law through Christ's empowerment. Look what this uh, life is like in Romans 8, chapter 1. Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There's no condemnation and there's freedom in this kind of life. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, nobody can live up to the law by themselves, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, look at this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. In Christ, we can be righteous. Those who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So this kind of life is attainable for those who are in Christ because the righteous requirements of the law have already been fully met in us. And we can walk without condemnation and with freedom when we're walking in the spirit. So as we close, four things. How can I be this kind of reconciler how can I live out Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? How can I do that? Quickly, number one, to fulfill the spirit of the law, I need to be filled with the spirit of the Lord. There's no way I can do this on my own. In my flesh, I can't do it. Paul just said it. The, the, the flesh has weakened our ability to, to, to obey the law. We can't do it. But when we are filled with the spirit, we can it's the only way to live the Christ life, that is with Christ's spirit. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, Galatians 2 says. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Hallelujah. So to fulfill the spirit of the law, be filled, first of all, with the Spirit of the Lord. And secondly, I need to seek the image of God placed in every person I meet. And again, it's supernatural. It is not natural. Watch me watch the Sixers tonight. It's not natural. I need to buy the Holy Spirit a ticket, uh, a ticket and just sit him right next to me, okay? It's not natural. I, I found even, even on, uh, when did they play last Friday night? Is that right? Saturday, Friday, it's Friday night. It was. I didn't watch the first half. I took all my Sixers member, uh, all my Sixers flags and everything off the TV. I was done. I, was, I didn't even watch the first half. Janice kept at me. She had it on without the volume, so it wouldn't bother me as I was actually working on my sermon. And then I could hear her over there going, "Oh, nice shot." Well, that's real helpful. So um, by the end of the first, the end of the first half, 
she had encouraged me to leave my sermon preparation and worship the idol of the TV and the Sixers. And, and so I, you know, I, I watched it. But I can tell you, I, there's certain players on the other team that I hate. I mean, I don't even know them. I'm just watching them play basketball, and I don't like them. I mean, that's, just, that's not right. I need to see the image of God in those guys, you know, uh, as, the, as the temperature starts to rise in, in, in my heart. Seek the image of God placed in every person you meet. And when the aggravation starts to mount, don't go for the kill. Jesus says, don't go for the kill. Respect the image of God that God himself has placed in that difficult, aggravating person. The third thing is to seek forgiveness before we seek to worship. Do a heart check before worship begins. We're coming into God's holy presence, and we need to be right with one another. It's as important to be right with one another as it is to be right with God. In fact, God says they're synonymous. So if God's speaking to you about a person you need to talk to, make a point to talk to them. And finally, we are to seek to reconcile in, in all matters, not just religious matters, not just with God, but seek to reconcile in all matters. Why? Because we serve a God of reconciliation. It's all about reconciliation. It's not just a matter of faith. It's a matter for all of life. And in fact, Jesus right here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount says it's a mark of one of his disciples to be a reconciler, to be salt and light in a world that would rather fight than reconcile. You know, six times Jesus said, you have heard it said, and then he stated something that the religious leaders thought inadequate, half-truth. Sometimes it was just downright wrong. Like you've heard it said uh, um, to, to, love, uh, uh, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You're going to see that in a few verses. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible, but that's what they taught. You've heard it said, and then, he, then Jesus follows it up with, but I tell you, but I tell you. What is Jesus telling you? this morning. What is he telling you this morning? Let's take some time to answer that question as we close. What is he telling you this morning? Let's bow in prayer. Lord, in this upside down world, we need your life and your power and your spirit to turn our hearts right side up. We cannot do it ourselves. God, our, our natural inclination needs your supernatural transformation. Remind us that those who are in Christ are crucified with you, but we're also risen with you in power, and that in your Spirit's power, we can be the salt and light. We can be the reconcilers you called us to be. Make us reconcilers. Make us salt shakers in the world that you love so much, in the world that you came to save. God, in a world that would rather fight, would you please show us as reconcilers how to shine your light? We need your help in doing that. And when it, when it works, when it happens, and people notice, God, we will give you the glory because it's in your name that we pray. Amen.